This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, despite the popularity of the regenerative agriculture movement at the moment, and the fact that there are many inspiring farmers involved, It's still rare to find experienced growers and ranchers, especially in large-scale operations, that have been working to regenerate their ecosystems and communities for more than 20 years. And for this reason, I was thrilled to connect with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures for a second time to dig into the remarkable career that he's had and the journey of transforming his farm into one of industrial beef production to a holistically managed multi-species farm that has been a beacon for the potential of regen ag in his region. For those of you who didn't catch the first episode that I recorded with him, Will Harris is the owner of White Oaks Pastures in Georgia's semi-tropical coastal plain. Described by his daughters as an organic icon of the real food movement, he's one of the very first people to bring grass-fed and humanely raised meat to the mainstream. Harris is one of the most outspoken critics of industrialized, centralized, and commoditized agriculture, and is one of the most recognizable leaders in the regenerative and resilient agriculture space. In this episode, we focus on the new book that he's just published titled A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, One Farm, Six Generations, and the Future of Food. We start by talking about the origins and his family's tenure of the farm almost 150 years ago, and how management and practices changed through the generations. From there, Will shares his personal journey from following in the footsteps of his father, who is a skilled industrial cattleman, to his awakening that gradually began to transform the way that the farm was run. Along the way, the town of Bluffton, Georgia, where they are located, began to change and grow along with them, and we discussed the role that White Oaks Pastures has played in revitalizing that community. We also cover a wide range of insights from Will's career, from the challenges and the hurdles that have been working against their vision, from the political and the industrial forces in the food system in the U.S., to points of hope and inspiration that make the difficulties worthwhile. But with all of that said, let's hand things over now to Will Harris. It's been a while since we connected. I really enjoyed, and I know the farmers that uh, you spoke with that day also really enjoyed that meeting that we had. It was probably better part of a year ago. How have you been since then? How's your family? I've been well. Everybody's good, healthy, taking nourishment. All good. Thank Very goodness. glad to hear that. How about you? Everything good with you? Well, I've had some big changes in my life since we spoke last. I've got my own little farm here in northeastern Spain, a little further north than Barcelona. Good. And, Congratulations. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're just getting started. It's going to be a long journey because it's just my partner and I for now. But uh, we're going to set up an agroforestry system with some small livestock grazing underneath a little silvopasture, seeing as that's kind of the ecology that we have here. Well, good, 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 good luck with it. Right. It's it's uh it's going to be fun. It may or may not be successful, but it's going to be fun. I think that's exactly the right attitude to have. Um, I'm very fortunate that you know I've got some other skill sets and I can bring in income, supplementary income, while the farm is getting established, and perhaps even once it is. Um, you know, we all have to pull from whatever resources we have available. Farming is not an easy industry to be in. But I do think it's important to try and contribute not only to the food security of my very small town here, and that's something I'm looking forward to speaking to you more about because it's one of the things that I've derived so much inspiration from your operation and what you've done with the town of Bluffton. Um, But also just 
you know, be part of the pioneering community who's figuring out how to make this work in an ecologically regenerative manner when there are very few models, at least around me, to be able to follow. You know, and I have, uh, I have been forced to uh, cease to be a recruiter for this mm. kind of agriculture because so many people went into it and did not fare well economically. Yeah. You know, I, I really want to say, you can do it too, but it's very, very hard economically. And yeah. you've got other skill sets that you can monetize, and that's important. But uh, it's really hard for people to, to go into this kind of agriculture and make it. Yeah. Unless there's a, a big uh, tailwind coming from somewhere. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to have in mind, too, that this is not unique to the regenerative farming community, that there are plenty of conventional farmers that work multiple jobs that have off-farm incomes. And across the industry, this is a difficult place to be in at the moment. It's very volatile as well. Yeah, I find that to be less true with the conventional farmers today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. 10 or 20 years ago here, there was a lot of that. Hmm. Now, most of the farmers here are really, really big sure. and really don't have off-farm employment. They're depending on that generation of people here. And I'm not, I'm not speaking for the whole country. I'm talking in my, my part of the state. And those uh, people that work part-time and uh, tried to farm, pretty much it didn't work. And, yeah. you know, they, uh, if they if they did it all their life, their children chose to not do that. Right. right. Yeah, I've heard that story from a lot of places as well. But look, um, let's change gears here. Um, you have just written a new book. <laughs> and I would love to hear, first of all, what motivated you to write this volume? Well, I guess Random House Penguin <clears throat> motivated me to write it. <clears throat> they actually... And they actually, uh, through an agent, contacted us, and we, uh, and I, I was pretty uninterested in doing it. Uh, my, they can't. They talked to my daughter Jenny, and she was interested in me doing it. So I <clears throat> gave me the opportunity to rethink it, and so we, <clears throat> whether I wanted to or not, I wrote a book. And uh, I hope it's okay. Uh, we'll we'll see. It's just just been out a couple of weeks, so it's just brand new. Called a bold return to giving a damn, and it uh, it's the story of our farm, kind of the journey over the hundred and fifty something years, almost hundred and sixty years from <clears throat> that an eighteen sixties farm here very focused on the land, the animals, and the community <clears throat> for a couple of generations. Then my dad taking it really to an industrialized, centralized commodity cattle farm, monoculture cattle farm. And then my daughters and I taking it back to something that much more resembled what my great-grandfather and grandfather did. Well, let's dig deeper into that. I'm always fascinated about stories of how people's lineages brought them into farming, especially a sixth generation farmer like yourself. Do you have a window into what life was like back then, how the management practices were on the land? You know, my great grandfather, grandfather <clears throat> weren't writers. There's no log, no yeah. log book of what, how it was. But we know anecdotally and through family law, how things were done. And it would it would have been, I think what's most important is that in that era, the focus would have been very much on the land, the animals, and the community. Mm -hmm. uh, my father uh, took over the farm post-World War II. He was born in 1920. And he really industrialized, commoditized, centralized the farm. He became a monoculture of only cattle. And while my dad made a very good living, uh, he was financially in good shape. Uh, you know, a lot of, it came at a great cost to, again, the land and the community. 
he uh, I, I, I was born in 1954, uh, worked, worked for my dad all through school, never ever wanted to do anything but run this farm very industrially as a monocultural cattle crop, just like my dad did. So I went to the University of Georgia, majored in animal science, graduated, uh, came home and, and uh, helped run the farm. I did some other things, but I always was involved in helping to run the farm until I took it over and uh, uh, ran it again, uh, very focused on the industrial model, monocultural cattle. In the mid-90s, I just rethought it and, and started changing it and have been changing ever since. And what did that journey look like for you to understand different ways of collaborating with natural cycles to get it to the place where you are now? I mean, maybe give me an idea of the contrast from how you took over the land, what state it was in, how things were working, and how you started to envision a newer or a different way of managing the resources and the community available to you. It's not a very flattering story to tell uh, on myself, but uh, I think I started making the change because I was such an industrial cattleman. You know, I was really focused on the use and abuse of the tools, the, on the animals, the subtherapeutic antibiotics and ionospores and other drugs I gave them on the land, the pesticides, chemical fertilizers, tillage that I used and to, 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 in an effort to make more and more money, produce more and more beef, make more and more money, and uh, just reached the point that I couldn't help but acknowledge that, you know, this is not, this is not right. This is not good. And almost immediately started to not like it. It was not the financial side of it. We were profitable. Uh, we weren't rich people, but we were, we were profitable, made money every year and lived comfortably. It was the, the uh, we, I just didn't like what we were doing to, my, to our land and the animals. So I started moving away from it without a real good plan of where I was going. It was more like ceasing to do things than it was doing other things. But it, uh, it it brought us to where we are today, which is a comparatively a very happy place. You know, the the profits are not anything to uh, brag about. The return on capital is not that great, but we pay our bills and we really enjoy what we're doing. And the economic impact on the community has been fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I really want to come back to that working with the community. But before we move on. Were there any, let's say, products or actions or management styles or anything that you started to remove in that learning journey that really clicked with you, that gave you the confidence to take other experiments and try new things? Well, that, that's what happened, but that's not exactly the way it happened. What, what happened was I, I was fairly suddenly overwhelmed with the disgust of what I was doing. Uh, mm. Actually, the animal welfare uh, uh, facet of it hit me first, but that was very quickly followed by the impact by what I was doing with the land. And so I, again, ceased to use all those technical industrial tools that I had become really good at using. And it was, uh, you know, I guess it was like uh, getting off steroids. I never have done that, but you know, you you really got this thing going, and it's, it performs, and you decide you're not going to do that anymore. So you go into a terrible slump. Mm. You just it's just not it's not working anymore. But then, if you stay at it and do the right things, you slowly build a much more um, resilient path to good production. And that's that's what happened with us. And and I got to say that we are still figuring it out. You know, 30, sure. 25, 30 years into it, uh, we think we've figured out a lot. I know we have. But there's still things almost daily that we encounter that we figure a better way of doing it. And it's, yeah. that's a lot of fun. And you know, my, 
my daughters, two of my three daughters came back. They're in their 30s now. They went to college, graduated, worked somewhere else for a little while and came back. And they they are, uh, you know, in it as deeply as I am. And, and they, too, are focused on figuring it out and making it better. That's a lot of fun. Both of their spouses came back as well. And those two daughters have five children that are here. We're the sixth generation on the strong. That must bring so much joy to you and the whole operation to have the family kind of reunite. I know that's a huge motivation for the farm that I'm starting here is to have the space and the resources to be able to invite my family that's scattered all over the place. Um, so you had mentioned that you were removing a lot of the things that you would become disgusted by. When did the holistic management and other practices that started things on a regenerative trajectory come into the picture? And how was the adoption of those? You know, I think those, uh, of course, I was not good at it, but I think that uh, uh, the beginning of that adaptation came as soon as I made up my uh, made the decision to quit using those industrial tools. I think that uh, it took a while to figure it out, but increasingly we were moving more and more in that direction and going back to more traditional ways. I'm, I, I was certainly not an expert in the traditional ways of, of raising at first only cattle and later with other species, but it, it was... Um, uh, we were moving in that direction and learning as much as we could, as quickly as we could about it. And I wish, uh, you know, I, I really, it's, it's such a shame that we did not, in some way, maintain that generational wisdom that my great-grandfather and grandfather had, but we didn't. You know, we, uh, my dad uh, embraced industrial commodity uh, cattle business. I think he really was uh, uh, excited about or the, being able to become a monocultural cattleman and get really good at that, at that one narrow facet of production. And he did. He got really good at it. He was a fantastic cattleman. Uh, when I came along, I wanted to do exactly the same thing. And you know, it, it, it's really more of a a journey to uh, as a generalist as opposed to a specialist, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot to be said for being a specialist in in many areas, but it, it does not work in nature. In nature, uh, nature does not nature does not love a straight line. Nature operates in cycles. Yeah, yeah. Despite that. I mean, I, I know the necessity of being a generalist when you are conducting the orchestra, so to speak, but you have a lot of people managing the day-to-day -day tasks of different operations and enterprises on the farm and the businesses that surround it. Is there a necessity for specialization in those, or do they still need to maintain sort of a holistic and generalist view of things to be effective on the way that you run this operation? The young woman who uh, manages our small ruminants, sheep and goats, and there's a lot more about them than I do. The uh, young man that manages our cattle operation knows a lot about cattle. The young woman that runs the poultry knows a lot more about that. But they too are generalists, not specialists. They do have a greater understanding than a conventional poultry person or cattle person or sheep goat person would have. Uh, it's, it's a lot more, a lot more understanding of the land, the cycles of nature, the role the animals have in it. You know, as much as anything, probably more than anything else, it's about strengthening and helping those cycles of nature to operate, versus in the industrial model where it's killing something, which stops the cycles of nature. Yeah, it's a very, very different approach, and uh, and man, my people all have it. If they didn't, we they couldn't, they couldn't stay here. Right. Now you have diversified a whole lot since you started to get out of the industrial cattle operation that you started with. What did that process look like as you started to bring in different types of animals? As the enterprises and the products that you offer started to diversify as well. I mean, I know that this had a role in 
the way that the business was built, but also how this connected with the larger community. Tell me about that process. Well, it was uh, the bad news about that is the learning curves were very, very steep, surprisingly steep. You know, I, I believe that because I knew a lot about raising cattle, I probably had a good understanding of how to raise sheep, but I didn't. It was very, very different. And I thought that after I sort of figured sheep out a little bit, goats would not be a problem at all. Also a small ruminant. Sheep are ruminants, cattle ruminants. Sheep and goats are both small ruminants. So I thought that the learning curve might level out a bit, but it didn't. It was still very, very steep. And then hogs and then poultry and then the garden and and bees and everything that we have added to the equation had a very steep learning curve in, in the production. And we learned as much as we could, and we hired people who knew more than we knew. And you know, that we, I went from, when I was an industrial cattleman, <clears throat> I had three or four minimum wage employees. Today, we've got about 170 employees. <clears throat> and I'm very proud of the fact that our employees make significantly over the county average. And I'm not I'm not proud of how much we pay them. I'm certainly not bragging about it, but it is more a good bit more than the county average, which I'm very grateful to have that opportunity. Yeah. Okay. And so throughout the expansion of the business and the enterprises and the diversity, I know that the community was a big part of how you made your decisions and where you put your priorities in this growth. Did you start out with a real strategy about how you wanted to include the community in the expansion of your operations? Or was this something that opportunities came up and you took them as they, they arrived? That is a very good question. And it's really, it was shocking to me. I, I never initially had any idea of benefiting the town. Not that I didn't want to, I, it, the town had been in decline all my life. Uh, you know, the town began its decline post-World War II, 1945. And I was born in 1954. My whole life it had been. And it was literally a ghost town by the time we I started back uh, changing the way I farm. We had, uh, uh, the only thing you could buy in Bluffton was a postage stamp. The only thing you could spend money on in town was a stamp about two hours a day. And <clears throat> saying so, I had no intention of doing anything about that, didn't think I could. But when we changed the way we operate and hired more and more people and a different kind of people, people that really wanted community. Hmm. And the community started improving itself without me overtly working on it. And I can remember having a visitor here and them saying, this is a nice little town. And it it really surprised me. And I I looked, I said, you know, it is kind of a nice little town. But I hadn't realized because it, it had been in decline all my life. So now it is very much an area of focus for us. We talk about the land, the animals, and the community. It's the, it was the last girl at the party, but it's just as important as the animals and the land, and we really focus on it, and we're very proud of it. Bluffton is still tiny, but it is a very, very nice little place. Mm. And let's see, there's so many things that I would like to know more about in, in your journey to get to this point. I mean, how would you describe the way things are operating now? Is it really revolving around a focal point of White Oaks Pastors, or has it started to diversify and branch out and become more independent of this central business? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question, but I, I think I do. But, uh, so sadly, I believed uh, for a long time that uh, I was a uh, an early innovator. I don't know that I need to believe these words, but the, the, the my idea was I was an early innovator that was 
figuring it out and that more if it worked more and more people would would come in this direction more and more farmers would move away from the industrial commodity model and into what what we do and that that has really been a great disappointment to me mm. uh, it uh economically it's very very difficult and i don't i don't think i would have made it had i not done it when i did you know i, I when i made the change uh, I was the only girl at the party that was uh, moving grass-fed beef initially than these other other products. And so we we caught traction and did did well, but it's gotten very hard now. And it's not. And the the difficulty is not uh, farmers like me competing with each other. It's big multinational corporations that are greenwashing their products so that it competes with ours. And we were lucky enough to, to get in it early enough that we've got a, a customer base so that we're doing, we're surviving, we're doing okay. And it's not great, it's not good. It's not, it's not, it's not a good return on the investment, but it's fine. My, my concern is not for me, it's for others that want to do this and can't because the greenwashed products simply won't let them uh, make margin on what they sell. Is that where you see the biggest challenge at the moment is the greenwashed products that are masquerading as regeneratively produced or sustainably produced, however one might define that, making it uncompetitive to put things out at the real cost of production when doing right by the ecology at the same time? It is absolutely the greatest impediment to the development of this kind of food production system. And, it's, and, the, and number two is not even close. Okay. Can you unpack that a little bit more and how that's uh, affected your operation and how you've seen it play out over the last handful of years? I can give you about a thousand examples, but the best one is uh, currently, uh, if you go to your grocery store and buy beef that's labeled American grass-fed beef. That animal was probably born, raised, and slaughtered in Uruguay or Australia or New Zealand. And the beef brought here, and, but it's labeled American grass-fed beef. And it's legal. It's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not illegal. It's not, nobody's cheating. It's legal. But it's, you know, it's... Uh, uh, intentionally, uh, it, it it very intentionally limits the development of the real grass-fed beef business in this country. And the loophole there is that if it is processed and packaged in the United States, it can hold that label regardless of where the animal was raised and slaughtered? That is correct. It is, it is intentionally misleading, but it's legal. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I remember seeing your communications about this on social media, and it is very surprising. It seems to be a short-term solution to the influx in demand without the development of the industry at home being at a place to meet that demand. Do you see some more, let's say, sinister or <laughs> misleading motivations behind this? Do you think it's just companies trying to show a better face? Or is there something good that can come out of this demand in the market? I think it's greenwashing. I think it intentionally misleads the consumer. Hmm. Is there a way as a producer to combat this other than perhaps legal action or lobbying to legislators? Well, there's no, there's, I don't know if there's any legal action you can take in terms of litigation that you can, you know, the, the, the uh, rule could be changed. Uh, I don't know that it, whether it will or not. It's discussed. Uh, it's discussed a lot, but it's not a. You know, I, I don't think it's in any way short term. I think that uh, we may be able to get the rule changed. We may not, but I think there'll be something else. You know, I think that big okay. food, big food, big tech is so powerful uh, within the administration, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. Within the, that. 
that the you know that the, those lobbyists write the rules the way that big food wants them, big tech wants. Sure, sure. Yeah, and it's very hard to swim against a stream that is that large. Um, you were saying that there are other challenges to people getting into this at the moment. Is it mostly financial or are there other impediments at the moment that you see really making this a difficult entry point at this time and place? Well, no, I think that, that is the problem. I mean, it, it certainly uh, there, there are there's always uh, financial uh challenges with going into a business for yourself, whether you want to start a, a fuel station or a dry cleaner, or a, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you, if you uh, uh, want to be in business for yourself, there's pretty much going to be a need for financing there. And I don't think that it's any worse in this business than it would be in any other business. But I do think that the, the deck is stacked by big food, big tech. I do think that. I, I, I know it is. What are some of the difficulties and challenges that your business still faces? I mean, I know you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of challenges that you're still trying to navigate and a lot of learnings that you're still working on. What are some of those main ones for you at the moment? Well, the, without a doubt, the, the biggest issue we have right now is on the marketing side. The fact that there is artificially cheap product out there, <clears throat> very difficult uh, for operations like ours <clears throat> to, uh, to to find the market. You know, if, if you if if it's uh, if it's in a if it's on a grocery, it's so it is so easy for grocery companies, and I, I still do business with some grocery companies, uh, Publix, Giant Eagle, some others. But it's those people. It's just difficult for them to to find people like us and do business with them. It's so easy to pick up the phone and call one of the three or four big multinational meat companies and say, "Send me X." 50,000 pound loads of whatever cut of beef or cuts of beef you want. And it's over. It's a done deal. Whereas with us, you know, we're bigger than most, but we can't serve a national chain. We, we, we just, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I think that, I think that a, a problem, uh, one of the paramount problems is the fact that the food business has become so national and international and it really should be a local business i think that we have traded the efficiencies of this huge scaled up business for the benefits of a smaller regional uh, food i think i think the lo local regional food is uh, far, far more pervasive resilient uh fits its market. I can go on and on about good things, but we've given that up on the uh, scale of, of big multinational food production and marketing. Do you see any hope? I'm so in... we, I, mean, I mean society. Yeah, and within that, do you see any hope of things moving back? I mean, there is a lot of attention and popularity around Regen Ag and food produced without chemicals in an ecologically sustainable or better way and with business models that improve communities do you think there's enough of a demand there and people willing to search out these types of quality products to sustain these businesses or is it still too small to really move the industry in the direction that you would like to see well it's definitely too small currently to make a big impact there's no doubt about that does it have the opportunity to grow bigger? I just don't know. I mean, I, I know that that when you look at the population of, of, of the, the, this country, forget the world, this country, uh, the uh, the dependence on cheap food has become so pervasive. You know, people just don't, and I don't mean everybody, but a huge percentage of the consuming public just don't want to spend much money on food. They, you know, 99 cent hamburger is great. It's good. It's great. There's no problem. 
and I don't I don't know what the numbers are, you know, and and and, and I know that when they when they start being tricked by the food companies, then it, it shifts the tide even further. So we, I, I don't I don't know. I'm a, I'm a farmer, uh, not a sociologist. Uh, I used to think that it was imminent; it was going to happen, and now I just don't know. Uh, I think that the food production system that's feeding us now has horrible shortcomings. I think it's destroying the the land, the water, the the uh, the climate, and a lot of other things about it that are uh, uh, concerning. But I just don't know. I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know either, but I've heard you talk a lot about full cost accounting in this area, you know, that the cheap food that we have grown accustomed to, and quite frankly, are many of us are reliant on. I mean, it's it's very easy to have compassion for people who don't have the money to invest in better quality food as they already struggle to make ends meet. Goodness knows we're in difficult financial situations all around the world. And the economy has not been good in the last few years. Who knows where it's going to go, right? The the volatility of things like this certainly make me empathize with people who, who can't make that economic uh, investment. However, you look back on the numbers, and I'm probably going to get these off by uh, one or two numbers, but it was fairly common around the time that you were born in the 50s to be spending somewhere around 18% of your home budget on food. And now it's... 10% or lower, if I'm not mistaken. However, what has grown in that time is the amount of spending on healthcare. And one would think that if you could preemptively move some of the budget that you would eventually put onto healthcare and invest it in better quality food and perhaps some lifestyle decisions, you might be able to avoid as much as possible that expenditure later on. And that's only a very small part of the real costs that go into these, you know, cheap at the point of sale purchases that we make. Can you give us some insights onto the scope that we should be looking at when we get to the cash register and we see, you know, the price at point of purchase and how much is hidden behind that? Well, you are right. And I agree with you completely. And what we're talking about here is unintended consequences. Hmm. The uh, you, your your example of uh, you buy cheap food and your medical costs go up is a, that's an unintended consequence, but it's so delayed. It's not like you ate the cheap food this morning and you have the unintended consequence this afternoon. It's it's it's, it's a decade. Uh, you know, and, and there are other things. You know, there's a there's a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico right down here, I'm 80 miles from the Gulf, <clears throat> that when I was a kid was a thriving oystering area. But you know, the unintended consequence of all this pesticide revenue, uh, residue and herbicide or fertilizer going down the Chattahoochee River, the Mississippi River, has <clears throat> destroyed the aquatic life. It's just thrown it out of balance. So there's a dead zone. So it's, a, it's an unintended consequence. It's a great cost. But those of us who contribute to it aren't paying for it. You know, the, I, I put out fertilizer and pesticides up until 20 years ago. So I contributed to it, but nobody sent me a bill to help pay for it. So within the, the, uh, the, the scenario is just full of harm that has come from the system that feeds us but the consequences are delayed and not not attributed back to the cause are there some maybe categories or words of advice or something that you wish people were more aware of that would help that perspective sink in as to the full cost of what it is they're purchasing especially from those who are in a producer's role, kind of like you were when you start out. And just keep in mind, you know, what the effects are downstream, quite literally in the case that you gave, but also over time. Is there a message that you're trying to communicate to that broader community? Well, I I, I don't think that 
any of these producers that are farming industrially today are evil people that are destroying the environment and don't care. I don't think that for one minute. You know, they're farming the way that their father and grandfather farmed. They're farming the way they learned to do it at the land-grant university. It's certainly farming in the way that the tech companies uh, are, are, are promoting. Uh, <clears throat> so it, it's you know, what you've got to have first is a willing consumer who's, who's who, a consumer who's willing to pay the true cost of the food they consume. And as you pointed out, everybody can't do it. You know, there are people that can't afford to eat well with this cheap commodity food. They certainly can't afford to pay the full price and they shouldn't have to. I mean, I don't, I'm a farmer, not a sociologist, and I can't figure all that out. But those of us who can should be paying the true cost of food production. And then we need to accommodate those that can't afford to feed themselves. I mean, we, we, we should do both. But we, we could do it producing the food in a way that doesn't destroy the, the ecology. You know, doesn't doesn't ruin the 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 waters and the the and destroy the organic matter in the soil and the microbial life that that, that, that makes it all work. It, it can be done. We do it here. We do it right here on this farm every day and have for uh, twenty plus years. Yeah, it seems to me that at least in the United States and a handful of other parts of the world where subsidies pay a big role in farm management and incentives as to what is produced and how it's produced are often a big part of the force that is hiding the cost of uh, final products for consumers and making it easier to run what would otherwise be very unprofitable businesses with all of the inputs of fertilizer, chemicals, and other things because of the subsidy assistance. Now, this is going to you know, there's a lot of controversy from all sides. I know farmers who absolutely depend on these and think that these are 100% necessary for food security and maintaining the industry, and others who would like to see it go away entirely because it is propping up the competition in a way that they can't possibly compete with. Do you have a specific thought on the role that these types of subsidies could play, perhaps? to start to shift the industry and incentivize better practices? Well, I certainly would say that, that the, uh, the, the incentives, the government incentives that are put, uh, put into the, the farm payments now are absolutely influenced by big tech, big ag, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, they, 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 I think the, the farm programs are written by those people, and it, it does it in a way that sells more product and generates more commodity for them to to buy. Uh, it's, there's, there's a lot wrong with it. I think that having no subsidies would be better than what we got now, and I think that uh, a more thoughted subsidies would be better than either one. But uh, I think that. You know, the farm programs that we have today are not written by our politicians. They're written by lobbyists and handed to our politicians. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And uh, it's something that we're constantly talking about here in the farmers communities in, in Europe. And I know there are other places where these subsidies play a big role. And also the competition of the influx of products, much like we talked about before, that are masquerading as locally produced or as better quality than they are because of the lax working conditions and lower wages that are paid to people in other places that further make it uncompetitive on a global sense to really you know, pay people living wages in other parts of the world. It's it's a very complicated place to navigate at the moment. I'm wondering if you have any desires of something that you think would help to shift the industry if it were present or if it were to change or transform. Do you have your eye on anything in particular? You know, I, I, I certainly don't know how government works. You know, I've been to DC a lot. Every time I go, I'm, I think I know less about how government works. But I do understand that uh, the 
the money that the big companies, big tech companies, big AI companies, big food companies put through lobbyists to influence the way the farm programs are written are just highly efficacious. I mean, it is, it, it's, they've got it just about like they want it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, unless, unless we, we won't see meaningful change in our food production system based on big companies doing the right thing. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen because politicians decide that uh, we need to redo this deal. That's not going to happen. It's not because big uh, land-grant universities are going to start teaching uh, a, a better uh, way of producing food for the land and the animals and the environment. That's not going to happen. There's, I, I go through a lot of reasons it's not going to happen. If it does happen, it will be absolutely on the consumer. It'll be because the consumer said, I reject that uh, production system I don't want food from there and find a local farmer to, to buy their food from. And, and when I say a local farmer, I don't mean white oak pastures. You know, I, I don't want to send food to Washington State and New Mexico and Maine. You know, I want there to be a, a network of local farmers in every state, maybe every county, that feeds their people. And I, I realize big cities it gets more and more difficult and I, I don't think that's where it'll start i think it'll start uh more remotely than that and because my concern now is it's not going to start my concern now is that the the uh possession has moved so far down the field that i just don't i just don't i can't imagine i, I know we're i know we're destroying the land and the water in the environment, the way we're doing it, but I don't, I don't know how we're going to uh, muster the determination to to pay more for food to fix it. I don't know how we're going to do that as as a society. Yeah, it makes me think that it may get to a point where it's not so much of a choice, where we will have to do it because there are few other options. Either the industrial system will begin to collapse, which Arguably, it's starting to do so in certain places already. And the only people who are viably producing at that point are those who have not degraded their personal resource base of the land that they manage. I would hope that this is something that we could choose our way into and start to develop the safety and the resilience systems required for them to be available when, you know, the the dominant system starts to fail. We've seen similar things to this during the pandemic. I'm sure you remember how there was a surge in interest in buying seeds and buying local when the grocery chain started to fail. But unfortunately, that didn't just happen out of a normal circumstance. People were forced into that condition. Yeah, and while the the scenario you described would benefit me and my family and my farm, I sure hope we don't see that. I sure hope that's not the way it happens. I really don't want to see hungry people because the system ceased to work. I wish we could be uh, smart enough to get ahead of it and, mm-hmm. and, and fix it before it became an urgent situation. But I, I just, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I just can't see it happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough to see from this vantage point, that's for sure. And this is from someone like yourself and from me who probably interact with and connect with people all the time who are inspirations of what is possible and really beacons for what can go right when land is considered, when communities are invested in, when the quality, when giving a damn (laughs) becomes the focus, right? And that gives me another, I guess, point of, of interest here is that, you know, we've talked about some of the challenges maybe the things that need to change in order for this type of production to become more viable for us to get ourselves out of this situation before it becomes an issue of collapse. I would imagine too, that it's closely related to the revival of rural communities. And as someone who has been so closely connected with the revitalization of his community, do you see that this is an inextricable link, the management of lands and the revitalization of rural communities? Or are there some other key components or ingredients 
that are necessary beyond just a revamping of the farm system for this to happen. Yeah, we 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 really are not going to have to spend a lot of money uh, revamping rural communities. Uh, the life comes back into rural communities when the food production system becomes more localized. Mm -hmm. We talk about this a lot in, in the book, but the the system that we're operating in now, just the money is just sucked through the rural communities and very little of it remains there. Uh, when when the uh, more of the services and functions are provided locally, you, you, the economy rebuilds itself. Mm -hmm. Again, I mentioned that here we've got a tiny, tiny, but thriving little economy in this town where it did not exist before. And there's been no outside money put into it other than you know our farm uh, operating in based on good business principles you know hiring people paying them the money just the money stays here mm -hmm. it's, it's incredible in an industrial system where we ship in my case cattle to the west you know the corn leaves the soybeans leave peanuts leave everything everything is just sucked out of here so fast the farmers paid the farmer that produces it is paid enough by the multinational company to cover his expenses and to make a, a living, <clears throat> but everything else is gone. No, nothing stays. It's it's uh, it's all set up for pure efficiency in moving the product and the money out of rural America, and it it works great. Hmm. Are there points of inspiration or hope? That you see at the moment things that make you think that there is a real possibility of change within a generation or two or is this not something that you you see a way out of yet well i think that what we've done here has proven that it can happen there's no doubt it can happen and it can happen without the government spending a lot of money to make it happen you now the the likelihood of it happening is that is what we've been talking about. I just don't know. You know, mm -hmm. the big multinational companies have it the way they want. They've sucked all the wealth out of here and it's gone to Wall Street or Silicon Valley or, or wherever money goes, multinational corporations. It's gone wherever money goes that's not in rural America. Rural America is poor. It's very, very cool, and it's it's not getting better. Hmm. Yeah, this is something that I really came to to understand and experience when I traveled a lot in the United States when I was younger, even before leaving to other countries and seeing the level of poverty in rural areas of the U.S. in contrast to in other parts of the world. It's not covered very often in the news media. You don't see the face of it. It's pushed away. And it's a really big part of the culture that is not talked about nearly enough. It seems that, like you said, these models of extraction of resources from rural areas are very lightly band-aided over with the minimal amount of financial return for what is being sequestered out of these parts. And most of it is the diversity, the health, the, eco the ecological resources that are required to have a vibrant culture and a population that sustains itself. And then we wonder why these communities are fleeing to urban areas. Now, look, <laughs> this has been kind of a grim aspect of the talk right now, and I don't want to dwell on it too much as valid as it is. Do you have any advice for people who are getting into farming at this point, perhaps from what you see of the younger generation that has come to work on your farm and the ideas that have come through in the larger network that you are connected to about what is possible, about where opportunities are in farming at the moment? Yeah, that is the bright spot. You know, they, uh, you know, we have an internship program. We uh, have uh, six or eight interns per quarter, four times a year. We'll have 20 something applications for the, for the slots. And these people that come here are brilliant 
young people under energetic, passionate, excited, smart, great people that really want to be part of this kind of agricultural production. And they, they learn a lot. And, and uh, some of them stay here with us. Some of them go, go on and I'll do things in other places. And, and, and they, I think all of them should have made it. Well, some did. But it's, uh, and all of them would have, I mean, almost all of them would have, had things been more fair. I don't use that word much. Mm. So things had been uh, such that they could find access to capital and work hard, invest it and work hard and get a return on it. And maybe maybe it'll be that way one day. I don't want to be, be too pessimistic, but truly... One of the bright spots is how many really uh, bright, wonderful young people are are interested in this model. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think that's one of the things that contributions through, you know, the work that you've put out, the examples of your farm, as well as so many others who are involved in this movement all over the world have really done to contribute to is inspiring this next generation and the brilliant minds and the tenacious spirits of people who are inspired to participate in the restoration of their communities and the regeneration of their ecologies through business models that provide for people and you know create right livelihoods while accomplishing these incredible ecological feats as well i find inspiration from you know the climate farmers community all the time people who are tenacious enough to push through despite all of the roadblocks and challenges like we just went over. And, you know, aside from, from advice, um, you know, what have been, maybe you've got some stories recently in the last couple of years. I mean, we're only just a, a couple of seasons out of what happened during the pandemic. What are some things that stick out in your mind of, you know, joy and success, the things that make it worthwhile for you to continue in this, you know, even even with all of the challenges that we all face. Well, and I don't want to be too, I, I know I've been pretty uh, pragmatic here. Maybe, maybe, maybe I hope I wasn't pessimistic. I hope it was just pragmatic. But there, there are, let me say this, there are really good people all over this country doing really good work. I mean, I'm very proud of what we do, but, you know, there's, a guy named Greg Gunthorpe in Indiana, a guy named Mike Calicrate in uh, Colorado. Uh, uh, I can go on and on. There's just a, a bunch of gay brown in North Dakota. But you know, there's a, a list of people doing wonderful work, doing great things. And, and I think that all of us are, have made some progress in our own markets. I think that we've all pushed the ball down the field a little bit. I'm just disappointed at how much we've been able to push the ball down the field. It's not as much as we should have for all the reasons we talk about. Mm. Now, for one personal question, before we start to wrap up here, now, as a reluctant new author yourself you said you pushed back in writing this book it wasn't your idea but you got through it what was that writing process look like i mean what were some of the the learnings or the revelations that came from taking the time to put this story down on paper and revisit some of these memories well it it, it was very positive i but uh, i wrote one book there will only be one book there won't be another book but but i um, I don't regret it. Uh, I, uh, I did. I was not reluctant to write the book because I didn't think I had a really good experience base. I knew I did. Hmm. Uh, I, I didn't want to write the book because I didn't have the literary talent to do it. You know, I went to the University of Georgia, graduated in 1976. I majored in animal science in the College of Agriculture. Nothing in my background has uh, made me capable of, of much more than reading a book, certainly not writing a book, <laughs> and I was aware of that. But the uh, Penguin Random House Viking hired a brilliant young woman to actually do the writing. Her name is Emily Graven. She's fantastic. And uh, she's the same age as my daughters, and so we, we got along really well. She spent a lot of time here. 
we had a, a conversation every Friday, in addition to the time she spent here, for over a year, every Friday, we had a conversation of one to three hours on the phone. It was, it was exhausting and painful, and neither one of us enjoyed it much. But she uh, just did a fantastic job getting all the uh, the, the stories that, 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 that I think are... I don't think the book wasn't written to just be entertaining, you know, and good good thing because it's probably not. But there is, uh, a, I think, a lot of information in there that people should know about the evolution of this this agriculture and food system that we live in. From when it's my people started it back in the eight, mid eighteen hundreds all the way up till now. And I think that uh, most people have not had the opportunity to look at it over that historical, economic, and uh, 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 what it's done to the environment, and what's done to the markets, and what's done to what we eat. And I think it, I, I, I hope that some people will find it pleasing. I don't know if they will or not. I hope they do. Well, I, for one, really enjoyed not only the information in the book, but the perspective that comes from being a pioneer in especially your part of the country here. And, you know, the tenacity that it takes to to work through all of the challenges, many of which we've kind of outlined and many more which come up in that book. I think ultimately, despite how much things might be stacked against us, because this will happen all throughout life and it will happen in pretty much any industry as well. That kind of grit and stick to it in this is one of the things that is essential and very common in the people that I know who are making it work in the farm industry everywhere in the world that I've been able to connect with them around. And I think that's one of the things that really uh, is admirable about this community and hopefully will be what gets us to the next stage, either in the economy or in the political system or in the industrial system where things are not so adversarial. And I know that people with these characteristics will thrive. They are going to be the ones who, you know, create that safety net, that that alternative that is absolutely necessary as so many things are changing around the world. I mean, being able to create a quality food base for a community in a way that replenishes the core uh, elements, uh, resources of a land base. That has, that's as timeless as it gets with human interactions with the land. And having a model like this from yourself, the team around you, the community that makes this work as an inspiration for so many of us, I know is it, is powerful and I know it's meaningful for a lot of people. So not only do I want to thank you for writing the book and and the insights that are in it, but could you also tell us where we can learn more about your business and get in touch perhaps with you or your team directly? Sure. Well we uh the website whiteoakpastures.com is uh has a lot about our business. Uh uh you know my email address is pretty simple will harris at whiteoakpastures.com and I'll, I'll answer you eventually. Uh, <laughs> That's fair. Uh, and, and we uh, we actually have, uh, we, we formed a uh, 501c3 nonprofit education a couple of years ago called CIFAR, Center for Agricultural Resilience. And we actually have uh, educational sessions here. That's on the website. You can look, look and see. We welcome people to those. It's a nonprofit. We're not doing it for the money. We're doing it to help spread the good word. Uh, we have uh, we have cabins and a restaurant and uh, a store here on the farm to accommodate people. We're we're about fifty miles from the nearest nice hotel, so. If you come to see us, you kind of come in to see us. Uh, <laughs> you, you do enjoy having, we do enjoy having people and uh, hope you come see us. That's marvelous. That's great that there's so many ways for people to come and connect in person. I feel like that's more important now than ever as so many of our interactions have been pushed online. And it's great that, that you're able to accommodate that. 
Well, look, uh, Will, thank you so much for your time today, sir. It was great to be able to reconnect with you and congratulations on the release of your book. Well, thank you all. I appreciate being on your show today. It was, it was a pleasure. Good talking to you again. Thanks once again to Will. I added the links to the White Oaks Pastor website, as well as where you can pick up a copy of Will's new book on the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.